describing your sort of academic journey, you, you describe yourself as a relatively late bloomer. Um, when did you first realize that medicine was the field that you wanted to go into? And were there times in your journey that you really questioned whether it was the right field for you? Yeah, so yeah, I do think I was a bit of a late bloomer. Um, it wasn't until about midway through my undergraduate years mm-hmm. at Clark University that I decided that actually I might actually be interested in a career in medicine. Mm-hmm. I had been resisting that because both of my parents were sort of senior in the biomedical arena. And when I went off to college, um, I really didn't didn't have much interest in medicine. Mm-hmm. But I was a psych major as an undergraduate, and I got very interested in experimental psychology. And a lot of that was around visual perception. A lot of that was a lot around physiology and pathophysiology. Mm-hmm. And, and quickly it occurred to me that I was actually sort of morphing into an interest in medicine. Mm-hmm. As a late bloomer, though, uh, in order to apply to medical school, I had to I had to play catch up, and it wasn't until pretty late that I started doing, you know, organic chemistry and other requirements to meet the uh, the requirements for medical school. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, and so you actually you went to medical school at Howard University, which was unexpected an unexpected shift in in where you where you thought you would end up going, but. You talk about that being really valuable in terms of teaching you some really valuable lessons that helped you later on in your leadership position. Can you describe a little bit about what going to Howard gave to you? Yeah, so I grew up in Washington, D.C. Uh, I was uh-huh. uh, somewhat familiar with, with Howard University. Um, I had um, a, a close family friend who introduced me to the prospect of applying to Howard. I, I really had not thought about it. Mm-hmm. And... Um, it turned out, uh, as I got late into the uh, application uh, denial and acceptance process, and I should point out that this was the second time I was applying to medical school, mm-hmm. I ended up the, the summer on a, a bunch of waiting lists, and um, the school that showed the most interest in me uh, was Howard. Uh, mm-hmm. And that interest uh, also was financial, in that it was much more affordable for me to go there, and it was much um, earlier, you know, by several weeks, almost a month, to to get in there. And for people who have applied to medical school, have been on a waiting list, and don't find in, out to where they're yeah. going until like the day before, that is oh, um, a, a wonderful kind of a stress. <laughs> so I went off to Howard, uh, actually not really knowing what to expect. I'd never been uh, in that sort of a situation where I was uh, a minority member of, a, of another majority group. Uh, and it turned out to be a really great experience. It took me, I think, a little while uh, to get comfortable, uh, but I quickly became comfortable. The classmates that I experienced at Howard were from all over the world. They have a, a commitment to uh, the diaspora, not just the United States. So we mm-hmm. had folks from uh, Africa, the Caribbean, uh, from all over. It was really a very diverse class. There were about uh, 10 to 15 percent of the class were minority writ large, and um, it was a really great experience. Mm-hmm. It was it was different than uh, where some of my other friends were going to medical school, for, for sure. But it was also really great in many ways. And, you know, to be that sort of different person in so many situations, whether it was when you were in class or whether it was with a professor 
or in a hospital setting with patients, mm-hmm. it really, I think, um, sensitized you to uh, what it was like to not be the majority person. Mm-hmm. And then later later in life, um, not so much at Penn when I was on the faculty there, but, but when I went to Merck and I became part of a large organization uh, managing people from diverse backgrounds, a global organization, and having to uh, really understand um, some of the issues that people were dealing with at work, uh, you know, as we tried to move them around the world and tried mm-hmm. to treat everybody the same and and realize that, you know, this heterogeneity that comes with diversity comes with lots of nuances and complexities. And it made me, I think, much more sensitive uh, to that mm-hmm. and, and helps me, I think, be a, a better manager. Yeah, yeah. And, and so – you know, you clearly you became. There's, I think, many important checkpoints on your on your journey to leadership. First, you became kind of sensitized to diversity and the value of that, and then you also, I understand, um, quickly thereafter became interested in, in innovation and this idea that science is not all just about the molecules and the granular, but we really need innovation on a large scale across the spectrum type of level. Um, and from my understanding, that realization came to you while working as a postdoc. Is that correct? Well, yes, it did. I mean, it, it came in several. It came in several ways. Uh, one, it came with the sort of the cognitive dissonance going on in my everyday experience in the lab, where I was uh, poking and prodding individual human airway smooth muscle cells, uh, typically for four or five hours under the microscope. <laughs> and meanwhile, looking out the window in West Philadelphia, we mm-hmm. had a an epidemic of inner city urban asthma, and it it didn't look like the things that I was doing in the lab were going to yield any results in the community in any kind of a time frame that was relevant to the lives of the people around me. <clears throat> and that, to me, just caused a level of frustration. You know, how can I have more impact? Uh, it was also mm-hmm. at a time where we were thinking a lot about access to care and <clears throat> how poor that access to care was for so many people for no apparently good reason. Um, and so I got interested in really looking for ways to have more of an impact to a broader population. Mm-hmm. Um, as, I, as I mentioned, one of the funny things that we did was we moved the appointment book from the asthma clinic into the emergency room, which for mm-hmm. me was my, my first attempt at <laughs> system uh, innovation, system of healthcare innovation. Mm-hmm. And it caused a dramatic reduction in emergency room bounce backs for asthmatics that came in in the middle of the night. Instead of saying, call us up and, you know, we'll get you an appointment, they went home with an appointment. They came back the next day. They got wow. uh, care from the clinic that they wouldn't have gotten otherwise. And, uh, we, you know, we got a, a significant reduction in the hospitalization and ER bounce-back rate, uh, and, and Penn was recognized for that through the medical assistance uh, program that was um, was actually funding us at that time for care of mm-hmm. patients in West Philadelphia. I think yeah. later – Later, when I joined Merck, I had an interesting conversation with a close friend of mine who who reminded me that, um, you know, part of what we're trying to do in healthcare is not just Mm -hmm. create new molecules and new products, but also to apply those things that we've already sort of bought and paid for, already developed, already Mm -hmm. studied. And there's so many examples um, even now of, uh, of diseases where we don't do a very good job of treating the population at a population level, even though we have wonderful interventions. Hypertension is a fairly good example. Mm -hmm. Uh, You know, cholesterol and cardiovascular risk factors in the past uh, was a good example. These are not all 
treatment issues. Many of them are prevention. But, you know, if you look across the cardiovascular spectrum now, we've done a really good job with lowering cholesterol. We've done a pretty darn good job with smoking cessation, and actually cigarette smoking is at an all-time low now. Mm -hmm. uh, we still have a ways to go with blood pressure. In my time at Merck, I was allowed to do a lot of really great work with the American Heart Association to help them reach their 2010 goal of reducing cardiovascular mortality in the U.S. by 25%. And we help we help them through this Get With the Guidelines program to, to meet that two years early. And mm -hmm. so for me, that meant that, you know, I was having an impact. And, yes, I missed uh, one patient at a time back at Penn or in the ICU or in the clinic. But I was also having an impact that I could point to uh, on health. And, and it really was meeting that goal that I'd had earlier to do it at a higher scale and have more mm -hmm. of an impact, uh, you know, across the country. And, and ultimately, we were allowed to try to pursue some of those things, encouraged to pursue some of those things outside of the U.S. We didn't have the same success. We tried to do some work in China. Um, it was, you know, it's complicated working in China. Uh, we didn't get it to quite where we wanted it to be. But the interest and the conversations with the senior leaders in China to look at the obstacles of doing that in China compared to the U.S. was really fascinating. And you know, I think I've learned a lot from those experiences. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and, and what I think is particularly fascinating about what you've done is that you, you've taken your experiences as a physician into your roles in leadership. So you mentioned missing the sort of patient-physician uh, interaction, but one thing you were notable for at Merck was trying to bring in the patient voice into a lot of the decisions being made, particularly in R&D, where um, that, that wasn't really the standard or the norm at the time. Can you talk a bit about that and what you tried to do in terms of amplifying patient voice? Yeah, so during the past, uh, <clears throat> or I'm sorry, during the last um, three or four years of my time at Merck, mm -hmm. um, we, we started to get more interested in um, the perspective from patients. You know, most of what was happening in um, healthcare was really through the frame of, you know, what did the payers want to pay for? What did the doctors want to do? What will the regulators approve? And and nobody was really asking the patients or taking the patients very seriously as to what what their preferences were. Mm -hmm. There were several um, drugs that came to market where there were issues between the risks of those drugs and the benefits of those drugs that once they were reevaluated with patient input, allowed the FDA to see those drugs differently in terms of their risk and benefit and allowed them to be on the market, <clears throat> excuse me, when they would otherwise not have been on the market and not accessible to patients. And so that um, kind of reframing of, of benefit and risk with not just the other perspectives but now with the patient perspectives really became, became key. And so when we started to think about what the implications of the patient input could be for uh, a pharmaceutical company or a biotech company mm -hmm. really started to think, you know, I mean, of course we know it's important to uh, commercial success because people, mm -hmm. uh, people's preference, of course, is, is critical there. But what about the design of the clinical trials? Could the patient input help us pick uh, better endpoints that maybe were more relevant to, um, to the patients? You know, a great example that people often, often use is, somebody who's going into a clinical trial for the skin disease psoriasis right. you know, might be might be told well the endpoint for you is going to be 
what percentage of your body is covered by psoriatic plaque. But the patient may say, you know, that endpoint is not the endpoint I care about. The endpoint I care about is mm. is is what percentage of my visible skin, my arms, uh, my legs, my hands, my face, is covered by psoriatic plaque. That that that's actually the endpoint uh, I care about. Wow. So, so these 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 personal preferences. Mm-hmm. Are, are important, and if you don't ask patients and take their input seriously, you won't do them. And the same is true for what side effects really might bother you. Um, you know, we might think at, from an FDA point of view or from a manufacturer point of view that 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 side effect wouldn't be acceptable. But you know, you got to ask because you don't have the disease, you don't have the symptoms, and so you don't know what side effect might be acceptable until you talk to them. So that was kind of on the clinical trial side, and we made mm-hmm. some progress in that, which I think was good. It was it was not easy. I think, uh, you know, R&D in, in, in our industry is a, is a very big enterprise, and uh, people are not very interested in disrupting it uh, mm-hmm. because it, it is so complicated uh, and so expensive uh, and, and so risky because bringing right. the drugs to market is, is a, is a high-risk uh, proposition. But we made some progress in that. And I think the other frontier that has to be looked at now is can you move that back even earlier? You know, can you get Mm -hmm. patients involved and decide what your priorities are uh, for the company going forward in the future? So that's kind of the next area that I think people need to look at. Mm -hmm. Completely. And also in terms of next area for you personally, I know that you're going to get to continue your work with asthma um, which I think is fascinating because it was really born so organically for you, your interest in that. Can you talk a bit about what you're going to be doing um, related to the asthma work that you have been doing, but how it's sort of shifting in direction? Yeah, well, I first got started being interested in pulmonary disease back, mm-hmm. when, I was a, back when I was an orderly, and I, I was taking care of a, of a man who had had polio, and he was quadriplegic, and he was on a ventilator. And I learned a lot about what somebody who – looks like they're disabled, can and do, can do and wants to do and was successful at. And that really inspired me and got me very interested in pulmonary physiology. Uh, as, as a medical student, I came to, to Penn to do pulmonary. Uh, as an intern and a house officer, I uh, got very interested in pulmonary, particularly because of the ICU. I went on to do pulmonary at Penn and went on to help run the asthma program at Penn, and that was really an interesting experience. In the asthma program, we set up, we had a combination of pulmonary and allergy and immunology Mm -hmm. fellows and attendings, and so the patients really got, I think, a much more kind of patient-centric experience, is how how we might describe it now, uh, than they would have by just seeing a single physician. Mm -hmm. Um, I went on to Merck, and I was involved quite a bit uh, in asthma at Merck with the introduction of a major asthma compounds soon after I arrived at Merck in the late 90s. And, um, you know, then at, uh, after I retired from Merck and I became a fellow at the Advanced Leadership Initiative, I decided I would like to put my energy into into asthma. And so I've spent uh, much of the past year thinking about asthma, thinking about the obstacles to helping those patients, and particularly disadvantaged patients in inner mm-hmm. cities or places, even rural areas where they're not really empowered and, you know, how to, how to get them more engaged, more empowered, better right. access, less pollution, less environmental harms in their neighborhoods. There are many, many aspects to this. 
the time at the Advanced Leadership Initiative has given me a, a wonderful platform to meet with experts across all the different stakeholders in this area and have mm -hmm. given me lots of ideas. And then very recently I was invited um, to throw my name in the hat to be the chairman of the board for the Allergy and Asthma Foundation of America. I've been on the board for ASA for several years now, and we have recently worked on a new strategic plan, and we have a new CEO, uh, mm -hmm. Kenny Mendez. And for me, that was just an extremely exciting opportunity. I, mm -hmm. I accepted it. Fortunately, I was elected, and I'm going to start in January to be the chairman of the board of ASMA, of, of the Asthma and Allergy Foundation of America, and that will give me I think a good platform to continue to try to help patients with asthma across the U.S. and really see if we can have an impact. 